Okay, um, good evening. My name is Andrew Scott. I'm from the Department of Law here at the LSE. Um, I'm going to be chairing this evening. And uh, in a few moments, I'll introduce our, our panellists. Before I do so, I'd like to say just a few words. Um, the very first thing to say is um, very well done for making it here this evening. Um, I think everyone deserves a metaphorical gold star. Um, I'd also like to apologise for the fact that we're running about five minutes late. Um, not only uh, the tube drivers are on strike, but also the lifts in the new academic building, which almost caused one of those panic moments where we were left um, upstairs in a lift wondering, will we ever get out of here? And certainly will we get out of here in the next five minutes. Um, our panellists this evening will be speaking to uh, the theme of what have you got to hide, which is clearly um, a... Uh, a derivation from the, the, the trope, you know, if you've nothing to fear, um, uh, if you've got nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear. Um, whenever we were first uh, imagining, envisaging this debate, um, we knew that we wanted to speak about uh, the vulnerability of individual privacy in uh, the context of uh, new media. Okay? We hadn't quite decided uh, what our specific theme would focus on, okay? um, whether it would um, be vulnerability to you know, private corporations or to the state or whatever. Next thing that happened, of course, in the summer was the emergence of Edward Snowden and uh, the various revelations that he had to offer. Um, first of all, on quite what um, the U.S. National Security Agency and uh, our own GCHQ had been doing, um, the legality of their practice, um, and uh, branching out into the wider questions of um, the legitimacy and accountability of uh, security service behaviours. Um, and questions regarding the design of accountability regimes. So those themes are really going to uh, provide the focus for our discussions this evening. Um, just by the way, um, apropos something else, I, I happen to be reading um, David Vincent's very excellent book um, focused upon the, uh, the aversion of the British establishment um, to openness. Um, it's been published in 1998, A Culture of Secrecy. And uh, it invited you to take the long view of such questions. Um, while we have been stunned, many of us have been stunned by what um, Edward Snowden's had to say, it was interesting to note David Vincent's point that in 1844, an enterprising Italian exile took it upon himself to include poppy seeds in letters that he then sent to himself in order to be able to demonstrate that those letters were being opened okay, by someone. Um, and this culminated in a Privacy, Privy Council investigation into what had been going on, um, which concluded that notwithstanding the absence of any direct legal authorization for such activities to be undertaken, um, everything was all right. Don't worry. Okay. Um, our panelists today, um, I'll introduce one by one, are going to be speaking to these issues notionally in the form of a, a debate. Although I think it's... Um, it's uh, probably a little unfair to suggest that we have sides in this context. I think views um, which will be represented here meld one into the other. Okay, And what we're hoping to engage in, um, both at the front here and with yourselves, is an iteration, a consideration of the various themes and, and uh, concerns that are at, at stake here. So um, first of all, if you allow me, um, to my extreme right is Professor Sir David Omond. Um, David is currently a visiting professor in the Department of War Studies at King's College London. Um, formerly, he was the, the first UK security and intelligence coordinator responsible directly to the Prime Minister, um, and he served for seven years on the Joint Intelligence Committee. Uh, prior to that, he'd been the Permanent Secretary uh, at the 
Home Office and um, prior to that, Director of GCHQ, the Signals Intelligence Agency. Uh, in 2010, David published uh, a very well-received well um, text entitled Securing the State, uh, a book that was rightly described in the Washington Times as an instant classic in its field. Um, again, almost by way of an aside, um, in that book, he sets out, uh, I guess, to emphasize the, the important work of the security services, um, while also recognizing the need for them to retain um, public trust and legitimacy. And he proposes a set of ethical principles to guide intelligence and security work. Um, I thought it was very interesting um, that that self-same set of principles has been adopted with appropriate um, amendment uh, by The Guardian in its statement of guidelines and ethical standards to be followed by its own journalists in the conduct of their news-gathering activities. Uh, to my left uh, is Matthew Ryder, QC. Matthew is a barrister based at Matrix Chambers in London. Um, he's been described as intellectually brilliant, an incredible all-rounder whose tactical ability is awesome, and his ability to argue cases in a coherent and persuasive way, second to none. Forgive me, Matthew. Yeah. Um, we, we shall see. Um, his practice ranges over complex criminal work, um, policing, the media, human rights, and beyond. His clients have included the parents of Stephen Lawrence, uh, the wife and children of Ian Tomlinson, and pertinently, Edward Snowden. Yeah, still talking. Okay. Um, to my immediate right is the Right Honourable Hazel Beers MP. Um, my guess is that of our panellists, she probably requires the least by way of introduction for myself. Um, she's currently the MP for Salford and was first elected to the House of Commons in 1997. Um, she joined the government uh, in 2001 at the Department of Health and shortly thereafter moved to the Home Office as Minister of State. Um, in 2005, she became a, mem a member of the Privy Council, um, joined the Cabinet in 2006, I think that's right, yeah. uh, and became Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government in 2007 before resigning in 2009. Hazel is a lawyer by training um, and is currently a member of the Intelligence and Security Committee of Parliament. Um, which is conducting an inquiry into the laws which govern the intelligence agency's ability to intercept private communications. Finally, um, to my extreme left is Annie Michon. Um, Annie is a, uh, a journalist, author, political campaigner, and PR consultant. Um, she's the director, I think I'm still right in saying, of Leap Europe. Mm -hmm. um, she was formerly an intelligence officer at the security service, MI5, um, and I, I guess it's fair to say she first came to public notice when she resigned from MI5 alongside her colleague and then partner David Shaler. Um, she subsequently recounted um, their experiences and perceptions of the security service and its accountability and oversight in um, a very insightful and important book, Spies, Lies and Whistleblowers, uh, MI5, MI6 and The Shaler Affair. More recently, Annie has developed um, what certainly I think is a very powerful critical voice through her um, blog, AnnieMachon.ch, and very recently has announced the establishment, I think, of a new whistleblower um, protection organization entitled Courage. So at this point, I think I'd like to invite you to welcome um, our four panelists. Our, our panellists will um, speak in just a moment for around 10 to 15 minutes um, in the order that I've just introduced them. Um, 
what I'd like to do then is invite you um, to uh, proffer whatever um, questions, uh, comments, or queries that you might have of our panelists. Um, we should have about half an hour for that discussion. Um, we'd like to involve yourselves in um, as much of this um, debate as we possibly can. Um, to close, um, what I'd like to do is to offer each of our, our speakers a, a few moments to offer any concluding points that they might uh, wish to um, deliver. Um, just before I ask David to, to kick off then, um, I thought that for the sake of completeness I should uh, mention that um, there have been two further books um, published uh, or to be published very soon uh, on the themes of our discussion this evening. Um, the first, entitled The Snowden Files, uh, The Inside Story of the World's Most Wanted Man, um, authored by Luke Harding of The Guardian, uh, narrating The Guardian's experience of um, the experience of journalists at The Guardian of um, the development of this story as it has proceeded over the, the, the past months. And secondly then, um, a further book, The Snowden Operation Inside the West's Greatest Intelligence Disaster, authored um, here by Edward Lucas, who is a senior editor at uh, The Economist magazine. Um, both are available shortly. I think I'm right in saying that Luke's book is to be published tomorrow, um, but certainly if it's not out available yet, it's, it's pending shortly. Um, finally, um, I'd like you to note that this is the second in uh, our series of the um, debating law events. Um, what's this space for further um, instances in this series? Um, and finally, I'd like to ask you if you are contemplating tweeting um, on uh, our discussions tonight to adopt the hashtag um, hash LSE hide, H-I-D-E, um, if you uh, need interpretation of my accent. Um, okay, so without uh, any more ado, can I ask David to kick us off? Well, good evening, everyone. Um, privacy, security, and uh, the media is our subject tonight. We need, I think, to cherish our free press. I support an editor's right to print within the law the writings of investigative journalists and even of advocacy journalists. But with that freedom also comes the opportunity for the media to make mistakes, to get things wrong, to be partial in their reporting and to do damage as well as good to the public interest. And it gives people like me the freedom to point out where I think they've got it wrong or are likely to get it wrong in their interpretation of where the public interest lies. Let me cite very briefly four such or three such instances in the coverage of the Snowden material. That is the 1.7 million American intelligence documents and the 58,000 British top-secret intelligence documents that he stole and handed to journalists. My first example is really uh, an, uh, an example of misunderstanding the public interest. It's the media's refusal to accept that damage to national security and to the public's security, that's our security, could possibly have been done by their stories. Yes, the Guardian redacted the stories they printed to remove obvious dangers, such as the names of intelligence officers. But no, they didn't understand where the real sensitivities lay 
in giving global coverage to some of the tricks of the SIGIN trade, signals intelligence trade, making it harder to gain the intelligence necessary to track the dictators, terrorists, criminals, proliferators, paedophiles and others whose communications are all mixed up uh, with everyone else's on the global packet switch network uh, of the internet. The editors did not warn their readers that there will be a price to be paid, a price attached to their journalists exercising their proper freedom. I can't resist very briefly drawing on the description of Edward Snowden given in the new book by uh, Luke Harding uh, that was referred to, who was one of the Guardian journalists who worked on the story. Snowden is a right-wing libertarian, an individualist, libertarian, opposer of gun control, supporter of Tea Party Senator Rand Paul. He continues to support legitimate intelligence collection, but he was and is genuinely appalled by the idea of the U.S. federal government collecting and storing information on ordinary American citizens, believing that to be unconstitutional. His tragedy is that he turned not to Congress, which had been kept in the dark by the administration, but to the wrong sort of advocacy journalists who had much wider uh, uh, exposure agendas. So Edward Snowden has ended up doing what he has said publicly several times he did not want to do, which is harming the security of America. The media response is to say, well, prove it. Prove it does damage. My response is to say, to ask you which power station is generating the light up there that's illuminating this hall. You can't say. It's a grid. It's an electricity grid. Intelligence work is an intelligence grid, but you know when the power dims, you know when the voltage drops, and it's precisely that voltage drop that Snowden's revelations will lead to. And that affects not just American intelligence or British intelligence, but all intelligence agencies, because the people, the bad guys, are now uh, uh, armed with more information about how to avoid uh, detection. And if you think about the Russians at the moment, desperately trying to keep the Sochi Winter Games safe, trying to track some people they've lost touch with, whom they know are intending to conduct attacks, well, I think I've made my point. It's the same methods that are used. The journalists that Snowden trusted failed to protect him. Given the scale of the theft of classified material, perhaps, uh, and the theft they colluded in, perhaps they never could have protected him. In the end, it was Julian Assange's WikiLeaks who came to Hong Kong, provided assistance and legal assistance, and then bungled his, the operation, so he ends up in Russia, Putin's Russia, of all places, for a freedom-loving American individualist to end up. My next example is an error of omission. The Guardian has not explained to its readers the important difference between the strict UK legal definition of communications data and the much looser concept of metadata, especially as it's used in American circles to refer to the powerful modern tools of data mining from the internet 
and from social media use. An analyst at GCHQ can only treat as communications data the IP address of the suspect machine, the email address of the user, when and from where the communication originated, and the server identity that's being accessed. They can find out, therefore, that the suspect accessed Google, but not why, not the questions asked. They can find out that a suspect accessed Amazon, but not what was purchased. The email address to which an email was sent can be found, but not what was in the title of the message, and not the message itself. Channel 4 News, for example, uh, got themselves really tangled up over a revelation of something called the Dishfire database, giant database that the American National Security Agency keeps of information culled from millions of text messages a day. The National Security Agency allows GCHQ analysts to use the database, but they can only use it, uh, only access it for communications data in accordance with the narrow UK definition in our Act. If they want to access the more detailed information, and there's tons of it in that database, then they have to get the relevant Secretary of State warrant. In shorthand, they can go onto the, they can access internet communications data up to the first slash, www.google slash everything after that is content. You wouldn't know that from reading The Guardian's account of this. Finally, the biggest example of the media deliberately confusing the public is their category error of not distinguishing bulk access to the internet, which the United Kingdom certainly does have, for example, through the transatlantic cables, as revealed, by the way, in 1967 by Chapman Pincher in the Daily Express, what short memories we have, distinguishing bulk access from so-called mass surveillance, which we do not conduct in this country. We are not under mass surveillance in this country. It will be unlawful for the intelligence agencies to conduct it. Mass surveillance is about pervasive observation of the population, the entire population, or a substantial sector of it. Observation implies observers, human beings, who are examining the thoughts and actions of the population. There is no room in GCHQ filled with people doing that. Of course, uh, uh, GCHQ, our Signals Intelligence Agency, in pursuit of its foreign intelligence mission, does have bulk access to large volumes of traffic on the Internet. Some, indeed, of that has to be buffered, stored for a short period of time to allow time to examine it. But just think of the need to to assess the risks posed by returning British jihadists who have been fighting in Syria. That's the kind of example where access to that kind of bulk data is essential. It's necessary to find the wanted traffic of the small number of legitimate targets. In the rather banal expression, the needles in a vast set of Internet haystacks. The intelligence agencies want the needles. They're not interested in your and my hay within which those needles are buried but they are buried because all our communications are mixed together. The use of the term mass surveillance, frankly, with its echoes of the Stasi observing and controlling by fear the East German population, 
is simply journalistic sleight of hand to damn the U.S. National Security Agency and GCHQ by association. Now, The Guardian is perfectly entitled to its editorial line on this issue. As I say, they have the freedom to write. But, frankly, it doesn't represent British public opinion. Uh, a poll, a TNS BMRB poll published on Monday, found that a large majority, 71% of the UK public, think, quotes, the government should prioritise re- reducing the threat posed by terrorists and criminals, even if this erodes people's right to privacy. About two-thirds of us, the public, think that British intelligence agencies should be allowed to access and store the internet communications of criminals or terrorists and, crucially, believe that uh, they back them in conducting this activity by monitoring the communications of the public at large. Indeed, the poll shows that most people expect such surveillance to be in place. Only 27% said that this surveillance was too intrusive. In conclusion... We just have to remember that in an Internet age, those who wish to harm our society, the enemies of society, uh, the dictators and the terrorists and the criminals, the current case of live streaming of paedophile assaults and sexual violence, for example, they can communicate anonymously using a huge number of applications ranging from Skype to Snapchat, multiplayer games, Dropboxes in the deep internet, with huge technical ingenuity, our civil servants in GCHQ can track many of those targets down so they can be brought to justice. I think what we should be discussing this evening is how we can be better assured by better oversight that these powerful tools that GCHQ and the National Security Agency now have can never be misused in the future. But I hope we won't waste time debating the fact that they need these tools. Thank you. Um, Well, I think I'm up next. Um, And uh, it's quite important to uh, acknowledge that um, the presence of Hazel Blairs and David o- Sir David Oman here is quite significant. They're here to talk about uh, secrecy and surveillance uh, in the context of very few people previously from the establishment who had inside knowledge being willing to come forward and debate it and talk about it. And I think that's something that we should be uh, bearing very much in mind as we have the discussion today. Because I think the title, What Have You Got to Hide, is a very good one. Because it, as I read it, it inverts the usual concern we have, or the usual phrase of, um, if you've nothing to fear, what have you got to hide, to ask a question of the establishment itself. And that's really who, that, for me, the title is aimed at. What have you got to hide? Why are you not disclosing more? Why are you not, or why have you not previously been engaged in a freer, more open, clearer discussion about what your powers are, what the legal framework is, and very importantly, how you interpret that legal framework? 
because I'm a lawyer, I'm not a journalist, I'm not a politician, and my concern primarily here is law. I, I should probably make one correction when list of clients was introduced at the beginning. I, d- I don't act for Edward Snowden. I act for David Miranda, who is the partner of uh, Glenn Greenwald, um, who is a journalist very much involved in the uh, Snowden revelations. Um, and coincidentally, I also act for a very large number of people who were the subject of undercover surveillance, uh, protesters, environmental protesters, the Stephen Lawrence family, large numbers of people who are now finding out for the first time that a no confirm nor deny policy in relation to how they were treated appears to have masked or hidden uh, the role of undercover officers in their prosecutions and their activities. So surveillance and secrecy and the consequences and the problems caused by surveillance and secrecy is something that's part of my uh, everyday work. Um, So this debate is very important. And uh, I think I do agree with David that we need to look at this debate, and it's a debating law series, in the context of the sorts of rights we're protecting. Anybody here who's studied law... Uh, knows that traditionally we've grown up with a set of rights uh, to do with fundamental rights that we should have that grew up through the misuse, abuse of executive power by kings or by governments. And they include rights we know well, the right to be free from unlawful search and seizure of your property by the king or by by government. The privilege against self-incrimination, the right not to have to answer questions in circumstances where you might incriminate yourself. Hard-won rights that probably many hundreds of years ago people didn't fully understand were so important, and our legal culture has had to or had to learn and adapt at that time from probably from the 17th century onwards as to why those rights were so important. Well, we live in an age now where, over the last 20 or 30 years, many of those rights are being played out in a context entirely different from hundreds of years ago. You don't need a search warrant to look at, go into somebody's house and go through their filing cabinet if you can go into the cloud and see what documents they have. You don't need to find somebody to intercept their letters or even their telephone calls if you're able to look right through their emails. And uh, you don't need to arrest somebody, uh, shine a light in their face and ask them awkward questions if you can stop them at an airport and require them to answer any question you may have about anything uh, pursuant to reasonable grounds for suspicion or not, that they may or may not be a terrorist. But importantly, those rights are being dealt with electronically. We're exercising our rights of freedom of expression, uh, property rights, electronically. And many of the issues we're talking about now are being, uh, or many of the actions of government are also taking place electronically. And as a result, our law, ancient rights, freedom of seizure, all those things, now have to adapt to most of us exercising our lives or living our lives electronically. So in other words, the legal debate about what legal power should be and what the legal framework should be isn't, in my view, up to speed with the reality of our modern electronic lives. And it's not merely a public debate through politicians asking the public, well, what do you think? Important as as that is. It's a legal debate. 
It's a debate about rights. It's a debate amongst people who understand what those rights are. That means government. That means judges being able to assess them. And that means parliament properly scrutinising the actions of the executive and those legal rights being worked through in light of that scrutiny. In my view, the Security Service, the Secret Intelligence Service and GCHQ have unfortunately contributed, perhaps with the very best, or probably almost certainly with the very best intentions, but have contributed to preventing a modern, sophisticated debate about understanding those rights out of an abundance of caution that merely mentioning anything about that, having that debate, is at risk of disclosing secrets, the damage of which we know not. When Sir David talks eloquently about we can't tell you what the damage might be of these revelations, it's a grid, and, and who knows what might be the consequences of a disclosure. Uh, I understand why he says that, but I'd ask everybody in the room for a bell to go off in their head when somebody says that. Because when somebody is saying to you, something's wrong, but I can't tell you what it is, and I can't really explain how it might happen, and I don't really, either I can't or I'm not able, through, for various reasons, to properly enlighten you as to what this danger might be, even if they have, and I'm sure David has the very best intentions, a bell should go off in a democracy. There's a problem with people being told we can't tell you why there's a problem. So, realistically, um, there are two big fundamental issues that I hope we get into discussing tonight. First, there is a level of secrecy about what is actually happening that has been partially pushed aside by the revelations uh, the, the Guardian and others, and it's The Guardian and others, The New York Times, The Washington Post, Der Spiegel, The Guardian and others have disclosed through disclosing the Snowden documents. I, I definitely take a different view from David on uh, the significance of the Snowden revelations in this regard. Uh, journalists have to be very, very careful if they're going to disclose things which may be secret. Secrecy is important. It protects lives in many situations. And government work, some of it has to be in secret. But journalists perform a vital role in our democracy that is not simply exercising their own personal right to say what they want to say. Journalists call governments to account from time to time. And any democracy has to acknowledge that there will be moments, hopefully not many, but there will be moments when something which would normally be secret may need to be disclosed. And utmost caution must be taken. A journalist may be taking a risk when they do that. But in my view, history tells us that from time to time, that process must happen in a healthy democracy because if it doesn't happen, it means that the mere classification of something as secret will result in it never, ever seeing the light of day. And that would mean government could never be called to account when it said something was secret. 
The second thing is that we don't know how our legal rights within the surveillance uh, community are interpreted. And for a lawyer, that's a real concern. Because we know that there are laws, and for the lawyers here, there's the Regulation Investigatory Powers Act that regulates surveillance. But we don't really know very clearly how those laws are being interpreted by the court that matters, the Investigatory Powers Tribunal, because much of what happens in the Investigatory Powers Tribunal is itself secret. Uh, the new chair, the new president of the Investigatory Powers Tribunal, Sir Michael Burton, has made it clear that he wants to be more open. He wants to indicate where he can uh, what the legal framework is. And uh, I am instructed by Liberty uh, um, against uh, GCHQ and others where we are bringing claims in the Investigatory Powers Tribunal in relation to the way GCHQ have conducted themselves in light of the Snowden revelations, prism, tempora, we're asking the Investigatory Powers Tribunal to rule on the legality, and a number of NGOs from across the world and in this country are in that claim. There's going to be a directions hearing on that matter on the 14th of February, a week on Friday. And that, we hope, is the beginning of starting to understand what the legal framework is, because that's been part of the problem. The legal establishment and government law has kept secret the very framework within which we can understand how our surveillance is regulated. Um, by way of example, the David Miranda case itself illustrates how when you learn how government interprets matters, it can be surprising. We learned, for example, in the David Miranda case that there appeared to be at one point a submission that, there were gov- that the government was saying even the publication of something like prism existing could be interpreted as an act of terrorism. Just the publication. Now, that, now that, that submission seemed to fade away after a while. Or another submission that was developed at one point was that you can be an accidental terrorist. Terrorism needs no intention. You can do terrorism accidentally by mistake. You can do terrorism without meaning to, without intending any of the violence or anything within the definition of terrorism if you accidentally do that within your act. Now, that may be an interpretation that the court should rule on, but it illustrates how many people sitting in the court hearing that were surprised. And that sort of legal debate should happen in a court, and we should understand how the government is interpreting surveillance. So let me take on some of the points in that regard that Sir David has outlined. Metadata metadata and uh, material. Uh, I'll be told I've got only a couple of minutes, so I'd refer, David, I think, if I'm not mistaken, to a very interesting pullout that The Guardian did in December called The Snowden Files, which set out, in my recollection, the definition of metadata Alan Rusbridge has made it very clear that for what metadata is and, for example, how journalists in particular are concerned about metadata because metadata can disclose sources. Just knowing who is emailing who can be very, very important information for a journalist. But if I've got three minutes, um, can I just ask you all as we have this discussion to keep some things in mind? Firstly, if someone on this panel as we're having the discussion says... Uh, you're wrong, but I can't tell you why, a bell should ring. If someone on this panel says that the uh, Intelligence Surveillance Committee is a satisfactory oversight mechanism, 
a bell should ring. Uh, and I'd refer anybody to a very interesting speech given by the former Director of Public Prosecution, uh, Lord MacDonald, about what he thought were the problems within the, with the Intelligence Services Committee. I know Hazel sits on it. And, and although it's been beefed up, and I'm sure it does uh, the best it can, um, the, its report on PRISM begs the question, why did Edward Snowden have to reveal what was going on before the Intelligence Services Committee seemed to get their teeth into it? And why, when they had their first hearing in relation to the heads of the security services, was it, it may have been with the best intention, something of a PR disaster when it turned out that they had been primed with the questions in advance? Even if that was, there was good reason for that, one might say it wasn't the best start to seeming to scrutinise those who are important. Thirdly, watch out when we talk and when you hear about this discussion in the newspapers particularly when The Guardian or Channel 4 is being uh, uh, attacked for what it's doing, watch out for confident answers that conflate different issues. What do I mean by that? Well, you hear sometimes people saying, we don't snoop into everyone's email. That's not the issue. The issue is, do you collect huge bulks of data? You may need a warrant to inspect it, but are we happy with that huge amount of collection? And is metadata itself a problem? When someone, when Sir David says it's just the Google and after the slash, we don't know, what does that really mean? Because Google may not tell you very much, but another website may tell you a lot, or an IP address may tell you a lot, or who you're emailing, even if they don't look at the content, may tell you a lot. We don't collect millions and millions of emails, but do you process the metadata? Do you keep the metadata? Do you big data the metadata and work with it? We act completely within the law. Maybe you do. Does that mean the law is good enough? If all of this activity is within the law, it begs the question, do we need different laws? So watch out for those kind of confident answers, slap-down answers sometimes to journalists. Because sometimes they seem to conflate things or set up straw men as arguments. Whereas in reality, and this is my last point, there are two key issues, two key issues that the Snowden revelations have caused, hopefully, the government to start to have to answer. The first one is this. Are we happy with the collection of vast amounts of metadata? Even if that material, even if the content isn't, of it isn't being looked at, are we comfortable with vast amounts, collection of vast amounts of metadata? And secondly, what rules govern the sharing of data? So, for example, if the NSA obtains data, what legal framework is there about how it shares that data with GCHQ and vice versa. These aren't questions that necessarily have a negative answer, but it's critical that we have a public debate and we bring legal framework to what at the moment has remained in the shadows. And I think Edward Snowden and those who've published much of what he said deserve credit for forcing the issue out of the shadows and being in a position where we can debate this, at least in the hypotheticals, much more freely and much more openly.
thanks very much. Um, Matthew, I couldn't agree more with you that the fact that we're having this debate this evening is evidence of um, a willingness, a genuine willingness on my part. I haven't been dragged here kicking and screaming to the debate. Um, I'm actually really pleased that there is um, a big debate going on. Um, To some extent, when you're a member of the Intelligence and Security Committee, um, your colleagues have no idea what you do on a Wednesday afternoon or really what you do for four hours every Thursday morning. Uh, Unlike most select committees, we don't do our business in public generally, um, and therefore there's very little interaction, um, particularly with Parliament and also with the public. Uh, And I think the fact now that we are debating these issues, um, not just here at the LSE, um, but debating it in our newspapers, debating it uh, in government, uh, can only be a good thing. Uh, I have some reservations about the way in which we've got to this debate uh, through Edward Snowden's revelations and I certainly wish that we could have been having this debate uh, without necessarily uh, having had to go through some of the pain uh, which undoubtedly has been caused um, by by the manner of some of the revelations and the extent of them. Um, I think that, that there are some very big questions here. There are big legal questions and I agree with some of the points that Matthew's made about the legal framework uh, but there are also some very big political questions as well um, and it's a long time since I was a lawyer. Uh, it's over 30 years but uh, I think when you train as a lawyer it never actually really leaves you uh, and therefore your um, willingness to ask questions I think is, is a good thing uh, about a legal training um, but also the balance that when you are a public representative and you're a member of parliament sometimes a member of government, um, you also have to very much balance uh, the issues with how the public does think. Uh, And I do think that it's important not to dismiss what the public think uh, as being excluded from some of the legal questions. And there's sometimes a tendency in this country to say, oh, well, this is too complicated um, for ordinary members of the public to have a view about because they don't have the information, they don't have a legal training, they don't have the ability uh, to sort those issues. Um, It's all too complicated. In the whole of my political life, for 30-odd years now, Um, I have never found an issue which, if you explain it properly, you go into the detail, you're prepared to make an effort to put it in straightforward language that the public are incapable of understanding. And I think that we have to have huge respect um, for for where the public land on these issues. Um, And some of the polling, as David's um, talked about tonight, is actually quite revealing about where the public feel the balance ought to lie uh, between security, privacy, liberty, all of these big, complex issues. And I think that's my first point really that this is all a matter of balance I don't think that there's a hundred percent view either way not a hundred percent view that everything has to be kept secret um, and we can't trust the public with it we can't trust the lawyers with it um, but neither a hundred percent view uh, that everything should simply be out there open um, on the internet um, you know for everybody to utilize because there has to be a recognition that unfortunately there is a small minority of people uh, across the world who want to do the people of this country uh, significant harm and have succeeded on several occasions uh, in doing exactly that. And therefore I think the concept of secrecy in itself is not a bad thing per se. Um, It is about how that secrecy can be conducted within a legal framework that has really robust (laughs) oversight, scrutiny, governance, a proper legal framework that can be challenged uh, in our courts as well so that we get that balance between the power of the executive, uh, the power of the courts, um, and ultimately the consent of the people. You can only govern with the consent of the people, and that's why I'm glad that this debate is taking place. Um, But we have 
have been on a journey for the last 20 years, and it is only 20 years ago that the public existence of the security agencies was even publicly acknowledged. Uh, prior to that, there was no um, oversight framework. Uh, people operated very much in the shadows, uh, and it really was only the Intelligence Services Act of 1994 that publicly gave a legal framework to the basis on which our intelligence agencies operate. Um, so I think it's very it's early days, if you like, um, in terms of uh, the maturity of being able to deal with some of these issues. Um, I've only been on the committee for four years. I had some experience when I was the police and counterterrorism minister um, at the time of the 7-7 bombings uh, in particular when I was involved with intelligence matters and I've been very involved with the programme to try and prevent radicalisation both as police minister but also as minister for communities um, to try and and, and build the resilience of communities to the extremist message. So I've always had a real interest uh, in these issues Uh, but it is only the last four years that I have had uh, a real understanding of how the agencies operate, what they do, what their capabilities are, and the legal framework within which uh, our agencies are allowed to operate uh, in our pretty liberal democracy. Um, And I would say, Matthew, that I do agree um, that the time is right for a proper inquiry uh, into the balance of privacy, security. Our committee has launched that inquiry now. We issued our call for evidence, I think, just before Christmas. Uh, We'll have a a huge range of NGOs, politicians, journalists, no doubt, lawyers, uh, sending us submissions about um, the issues that they want us to look into. Uh, I've said publicly that I want some of those sessions as far as we can to be held in public so that we're taking the evidence and people can see that there's a greater degree of transparency around that. Um, Obviously, if it's classified materials, some of the sessions inevitably will be in private, but as much as we can, I think we've got to err on the side uh, of having a really open debate in this country. Uh, I think we should also be looking at our oversight system. Is it robust enough? Uh, Is the legal framework fit for purpose and I I have some reservations about that as I know that David does that we can actually improve uh, the legal framework to to make it uh, a better system for the future so um, I think you you know it's a little bit unfair um, when I read in the in some of the press uh, that the Intelligence Security Committee um, is a a government um, poodle uh, lackeys of government Um, I don't think I could ever have been described as a lackey um, of of government of any any shade really Um, and the members of the Intelligence Committee um, are, are you know, pretty determined to, to, to have this inquiry uh, in as open, robust and detailed way as we can. Um, but I think that we've got to look a little bit um, at what surveillance really actually is about in the internet age. Um, and surveillance is sometimes seen as a kind of malign plot by sinister characters who want to do us harm. Um, and those are always painted as the security agencies. Um, and I was looking at some of that polling, that same polling, and actually the public are more concerned about the surveillance that's carried out on them uh, by companies like Facebook, Google, uh, Microsoft, all of those companies, than actually they are concerned about surveillance by the security agencies. Now, I was personally quite surprised about that because I thought people would think security agencies, dark, in the shadows, want to do you harm, um, agents of the government, agents of the secret state, you know, all of those Stasi connotations, 1984, Orwellian um, kind of symbols, Um, and I thought the public would be far more concerned about their data um, being obtained by security agencies than they would be about commercial organisations, but actually the reverse is the case, and I think that's perhaps an illustration of my belief uh, in the common sense of ordinary people uh, when faced with these situations. Um, And 
If you look at some of the stuff that, that the um, commercial companies are doing, um, I, I've been amazed by the extent uh, of the surveillance that they're able to undertake. Um, not just using cookies, using tracking uh, devices, uh, tracking applications, third-party tracking applications. Um, and there was a, um, one of my people in my office last week uh, was looking to buy a new CD player. Um, and uh, he'd gone on uh, the internet to look for CDs. And then what does he find on his Facebook page? suddenly adverts for CD players that he'd been looking for. Um, I went on the internet last week to find um, a cover for my Kindle um, and I have been inundated for the last um, seven days with adverts for Kindle covers. Um, So all of this information is soaked up, scooped up, hoovered up in vast quantities in order to feed the commercial advertising machine. That's what it's about because all these services that we have for internet, they're all free. Um, But there's no such thing as a free lunch. Actually, the price you're paying is your information um, and your personal data, and that is being hoovered up to an extent probably greater than anything that our security services can do. And I never, ever hear about any of that in the debates that go on in the press. Where is the balance between the commercial use of information and actually information being used by security services whose total motivation uh, is to try and keep this country safe and to protect the citizens of this country? Um, And I think Max Weber describes surveillance uh, as a benefit for the development of Western capitalism uh, and the modern nation-state. And I just find it a bit of an irony uh, that many people on the left, and I'm a Labour politician, but many people on the left are more more worried by the security agencies um, rather than these companies. And, you know, if if it's being used to make Western capitalism a more powerful, rapacious beast, I'd have thought we would have seen a little bit more outcry on the left uh, about the way in which these companies are operating. Where's their legal framework? Where's their accountability? Do they have an intelligence security committee that calls them to account uh, for all the work that they're doing? The buying and selling of your data is absolutely immense. Uh, There's been an estimation that we're all giving £5,000 worth of data each person uh, every year for these companies to buy and sell and make money and make profits, and yet I don't hear a peep about any of that. And therefore, I would just ask people to to take a balance that the security agencies mission in this country uh, is to protect us and to keep us safe. They need capabilities in order to be able to do that. Those capabilities absolutely need to be governed by a robust, strong legal framework, a proper accountability and oversight regime. Um, But if you don't actually give them the authority to have the capability to do some of this work, then their ability to protect all of us as a country uh, indeed will be undermined uh, and damaged. And I do think there needs to be a more balanced and nuanced debate uh, about some of this. Um, the Guardian um, uh, pullout that was published before Christmas, I read it. Um, I thought it was a very useful piece of information. Mm-hmm. I sent it to all my committee, told them all to read it. That was eight pages about privacy. I looked in that um, pullout. I don't know if you did, Matthew. There was not a single mention of terrorism, not a single mention of the threat. It was all about privacy. Now, if you've got um, a threat then you've got to balance that with how much capability do you give your agencies in order to combat that threat, um, and you also have to then balance it with the important issues around privacy uh, as well. And yet I feel that some of this debate has simply been in the realm of privacy. We're outraged, our privacy is being invaded, um, but the only reason the agencies do it is in order to be able to protect us from the undoubted threat that we face. Um, and I'm afraid 
you know, I won't say I can't tell you. Um, there are several thousand people in this country, as we speak now, as we sit here in this hall, um, who are actually on the radar of our security agencies, um, who are in some degree, um, some lesser, some greater degree, um, actually now actively um, plotting, conspiring, working together uh, in order to do this country harm. Um, it isn't a figment of our imagination. Uh, we're lucky that in the last um, 10 years or so, um, the big spectacular events like the 7-7 bombings um, haven't been repeated, but we've had probably a dozen um, quite serious and complex threats, which if they'd got to fruition, uh, would actually have caused multiple casualties, uh, multiple fatalities in this country. Uh, we've had a couple that have got through. Uh, we had the Glasgow um, um, attempt up there. Uh, we've had the Woolwich m- uh, murder of, of Drummer Lee Rigby, uh, things that have actually got through the system. And unless you've got capability to be able to discern intelligence, to look at patterns, to look at fragments, to look at leads, to be able to follow all of that up, then we're in danger of missing uh, the people who actually want to uh, do us harm. I just want to say a couple of words about oversight um, and accountability. Um, We have come quite a long way, um, and we've come... um, kind of further faster in the last couple of years, I would say. Um, The Justice and Security Act that was passed last year um, has some changes in it, which I think are quite far-reaching. And one of them looks like a really small change on the surface. In the past, the committee was only able to request information from the security agencies. So what they did was to kind of edit the information that they would give us, thinking this is what we ought to see. Um, And we've changed now our ability to request information. We now have the power to require information uh, from the security agencies. That looks like a small change, but as in most legal um, areas, one word can have a a tremendous effect. We now have the power to um, send our officials into the agencies, to look at primary intelligence material, to inspect the files, uh, to make sure that we get everything that is relevant about the inquiries that, that we carry out. In order to do that, we need more resources, we need better investigators, we certainly need more technical support, and that's something I think does need to change as the internet um, becomes ever more complicated. I'm not an IT specialist. I'm not somebody that has all of this knowledge. What I need as a member of that committee is I need people sitting with me, talking about the capabilities, how does it work, how does PRISM and Tempora and all these programmes work um, that is independent from the agencies so that I get a view into all of that. Um, But I I, I do think now that the changes to the Justice and Security Act give us more power, more resources. We've been negotiating with government for some time. I think we're just about at a position where we know what we're going to get. Um, and I hope that we will have the power to do more in future. Uh, having said that, I do think that the legal framework um, certainly needs examination. If you read the um, Ripper uh, Act, it is slightly impenetrable. And I know David was very involved in uh, formulating that legislation, but um, I have read it again and again and again. Um, and I think I've got it. And then I find a subclause somewhere else that you know, um, tells me something different. Um, so I do think it's, it's well worth looking uh, at that. Um, I also think that there are some issues about the receipt of information that we get from our allies and whether or not our legal framework is sufficiently robust to cover that, particularly where it's passive receipt, where we haven't asked for it, but somehow we've got it. How do we then apply our legal framework to make sure that we are never doing anything uh, in receipt of information from other countries that we couldn't do within our own properly um, robust legal framework? So I, I, I'm looking forward, actually, to getting some of this evidence at the committee to looking at our oversight, making sure that it's robust enough going forward. Uh, I know the Investigatory Powers Tribunal has been a very shadowy creature in the past, and I'm pleased that now they want to be more open uh, in the way that they operate. 
Um, and I, I really um, don't have any problem at all with being open as long as that's consistent with protecting the people of this country. Um, and I just wish that, that this whole debate um, was a little bit more balanced in terms of why the security agencies do what they do. You know, and, and it's trite to say, isn't it, I know, that... that um, I meet them quite often. I go to GCHQ, I go to the security service, I go to um, uh, SIS, I meet the people who are engaged in this mission. Um, and, do you know, they are incredibly impressive. They are so conscious um, of their responsibilities under the Human Rights Act. Um, they're so conscious that, that of the need uh, in, in a democracy to exercise their powers and capabilities in a way that's consistent with the law, um, that it's hugely impressive. We don't have rogue intelligence agencies in this country, unless Annie's going to tell me something very different when she makes her contribution. I genuinely do not believe that we have rogue intelligence agencies that are out there beyond our control, uh, roaming about, gathering information that's against the interests of these citizens, uh, of our citizens at large. My final point is that there's a lot of contradictions in this debate. Um, and sometimes when I talk to people, sometimes very often lawyers, sometimes judges, um, it's all about a matter of how much risk you're prepared to take. You could live in a, a society um, like East Germany was, where every other person was an informer for the state. None of us wants to live in that kind of society. I certainly don't. Um, but you have to decide where your appetite for risk really lies. Um, because if you come back from that position then you're increasing the risk um, perhaps all the time uh, of how much you're going to be able to protect people. And some people have said to me that you know, they're not prepared almost to have any uh, limitations on openness and any limitations on powers. And if the result of that is a terrorist event that kills a couple of hundred people, that that is in a, in a democracy. And it's, it sounds terrible to say it, but... It has been said to me that that's, in a way, a price worth paying. That's the price we pay for our freedoms and our democracy and everything else. And that's a legitimate view. Um, and I think that, as a society, um, we have got to, to really be prepared to take that on and say, where is our limit to our appetite for secrecy? And where do we say, well, that's enough, that's as far as we want to go, and we will accept the risk that the, the, the people who want to do us harm will have more freedom to do us harm uh, in that kind of scenario. Now, if we end up with a consensus around that in our democracy, then so be it. Um, all I would say is that the people who want complete um, kind of individual privacy will deny capabilities to our agencies that could be absolutely crucial in protecting us um, from the terrorist harm that people seek to do. And that balance is really up to all of us, not just politicians, up to all of us as citizens. Where do we think the balance is rightly struck? Where are we comfortable um, in our free society um, of, of having that balance and how can we ensure that there is as much um, oversight, scrutiny and robust legal framework to give us the confidence that we can give our agencies the capabilities um, to protect us and to make our country um, the pretty safe place actually it is um, at the moment. Um, we'll move on to Annie uh, in just a moment. Annie, um, I've allowed Hazel to, to continue there, slightly beyond her a lot of time. If you'd like a bit extra time, um, please feel free, and we'll come back to our two um, gentlemen subsequently. Is that microphone? Yes. Well, uh, 
Thank you very much for some very interesting contributions from the three previous speakers and also for the praise of some of my former colleagues. I know that many, many people, good people, go into these agencies with the best of intentions to protect our national security and our way of life. However, of course, it's not all roses, as I'm sure you will expect me to say a little bit about tonight. In the 1990s, I was employed as an MI5 intelligence officer, and there I met my former colleague and partner, David Shaler, as was mentioned in the introduction, and we saw a number of things going wrong. And this was in a fairly ethical era of MI5's 100-year existence, because they had just been put on a legal footing for the first time in 1989. And this is before 9-11, when some of the more extreme practices came into being. But despite that, we did see a number of things going wrong, uh, which included files on government ministers, bombs that could and should have been prevented, which were planted by the provisional IRA on UK streets, which exploded and killed innocent people, and then the spies lying to government about their mistakes in those operations. Illegal telephone taps, innocent people going to prison, and also MI6 funding an assassination plot against Colonel Gaddafi of Libya in 1996, which was not approved by the Secretary of State, Sir Malcolm Rifkin, at the time, and which obviously didn't achieve its objective, which was to assassinate Gaddafi, but did kill innocent people. So that was a range of things that we saw going wrong. This is well documented at the time of the whistleblowing in the late 1990s, where David Shaler became a rather notorious, uh, very famous whistleblower when he exposed these issues. And by doing so, and by my helping him, we found ourselves literally having to go on the run around Europe. We did an Edward Snowden years ago. And he had to live in hiding for a year. He had to live in exile in France for three years. And he went to prison not once but twice. First of all, when the British government failed to extradite him in 1998. And then secondly, after he had returned to the UK voluntarily to stand trial for a breach of the Official Secrets Act and was inevitably found guilty for his whistleblowing. So I just mentioned that as a sort of run-up to why I want to say what I'm saying now. And one of the key points, of course, of tonight's debate is the issue of privacy. Privacy versus security, liberty versus security. Having done something rather extreme in the 1990s, having gone on the run and blown the whistle and crossed the intelligence agencies, I know from experience what it is like to live without a sense that you can have privacy in your life where you can't guarantee that your communications are not being intercepted. You can't even feel you can have a conversation with your mother about a family issue without the possibility that it is being recorded. Where you can't also guarantee privacy in your own home because there might be bugs in your flat or in your house, even in your own bedroom. And where also there might be the possibility of some of your friends being pressured to report back on you to the intelligence agencies. And all I can say from that is whether or not that happened, whether or not that was realistic, and I think probably in the first few years that probably was a realistic threat assessment from our point of view, just the possibility of not having privacy is very corrosive, very corrosive to the human spirit, to your relationships, to the sense that you can't feel free to talk openly, and where you you begin to self-censor what you might be reading and ingesting over the internet. So fast forward now, where we're looking at a much wider, wide-ranging surveillance capability against all of us with the internet um, and the new technologies, where none of us now, in the wake of Edward Snowden, can guarantee that we have privacy um, in our communications. What is the impact for us? Well, again, it's not just corrosive necessarily to the human spirit, to the fact we might begin to self-censor. It is also corrosive, potentially, to our very way of life, to our democracy, 
Because if we feel that we are not private, we will start to self-censor what we read, what we write, what we say, what we plan, how we associate. We even lose basically our freedom of conscience effectively because we self-censor. We worry that what we say now might be used against us. And while that isn't necessarily the case now, of course laws can change, as they did in the 1930s Germany. So what you might be doing now, as an innocent activist out there on the street waving a placard in a just cause, or getting involved in an Occupy camp, if your information, even the basic metadata, who you're associating with, who you're in contact with, is collected and stored for a number of years, and then the laws might change, that information could in the future be used against you for what you're doing legitimately now. And if that sounds fanciful, just think back to a couple of years ago when the Occupy camp was in the City of London, and a letter was leaked from the City of London police warning the neighbouring banks that they deemed the Occupy group to be potentially domestic extremists slash terrorists. So if any of you were in the Occupy camp, you may well have quite an interesting file. So if the laws shift, if you suddenly become, you are part of an organisation that in the future might be deemed to be more of a threat, and the basic communications data now is being stored for future use, you can see the dangers that might be facing each and every one of us. So this is why it's important, why privacy is such a fundamental right, and I think that the basic argument that we hear time and time again from the security and intelligence community, that there is a balance between liberty and security, is actually bogus. The core, core issue here is our right to privacy. And Matthew mentioned all the fights, the decades, the centuries, where we in Europe, we in the West, have fought, our ancestors fought, for a whole range of basic human rights, which were, of course, enshrined magnificently in 1948 in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights. And they were enshrined for a reason then, to prevent in the future the horrors that had just been visited on the the world during World War II, to prevent those sort of abuses happening again on that scale. And I would suggest that we have become bloated with ease and we have become complacent in the West because we have had 60, 70 years of peace where we don't value the importance of these basic rights, why we have them. And in the name of protecting us against this nebulous, ever-increasing, ever-mutating terrorist threat we seem quite happy to allow them to slide away, to slip through our fingers. And I find that interesting because when I was involved in the intelligence agencies where I worked there, one of the key threats at that time was the Irish terrorist groups. And realistically, on the streets of London, I remember there being security alerts virtually every day and there'd be tube problems and things trying to get home from work. But actually, realistically, there were bombs going off on a fairly regular basis on our city streets where people would be killed or injured. And there were debates, of course, around the balance between liberty and security and, you know, do we give takeaway rights to protect ourselves against the provisional IRA? And yet we didn't, largely. And now, when we face a far more nebulous threat and a far less realistic daily or weekly threat on our streets from this sort of nebulous global terror, we've given away so many of our rights, so unthinkingly. And I think that is a real problem for our democracy, for our way of life. And it's the democracy and way of life which the intelligence agencies specifically are there, supposedly, to protect. I do agree, though, that the balance, and it's great that there is an increasing awareness, an increasing debate around this. But one of the issues we have in how we regulate and oversee 
um, and control our intelligence agencies is trying to define exactly what they're there to do. Now, it says that they are there to protect our national security and the economic well-being of the UK. But actually, for the purposes of law, my understanding is that national security has never been legally defined for the purposes of law in this country. And we see time and time again, often with lazy journalists as well as rent-a-quote people in the media, that national security is very often conflated with the national interest or the public interest or whatever. And that is not what the intelligence agencies are there to protect. It's only the national security angle. And I would suggest that national security is actually anything that poses a threat to the existence of the UK, an existential level threat, such as we faced during the Second World War. And I would suggest we haven't actually faced anything at that level since. Sure, it's terrible if a bomb goes off or a spectacular happens. People die. It's a terrible crime. But it is not an existential threat to our national security. So to give away our rights so thoughtlessly, I think is damaging our democracy more than the threat of terrorism ever could. Now, we do have these intelligence agencies, and Hazel is absolutely right. Of course, they are much more accountable than they used to be. The first accountability began in 1994 with the Intelligence Services Act, as she mentioned, and the establishment of the Intelligence and Security Committee in Parliament in 1994, which until this year, last year, has only been responsible for looking at policy, finance and administration and could not investigate operational matters. And in fact, I remember, because I was on the inside when this law came into being, and there was a bit of trepidation from the spy community at that time, how much oversight will we have to submit to in Parliament? And when the ISA came out, there was relief all round. They realised that actually it was quite a light burden of accountability, and so it proved to be for 20 years. But it's fantastic now that there is more scope for operational investigations. I think that is crucial, especially because... Other, uh, we have had evidence over the last decade or so that top spies and top police officers have been, should we say, economical with the truth when talking to the ISC, and the ISC members have no way of knowing. They had no powers to compel evidence, to compel information to come out. And we know this because Sir Stephen Nander, former head of MI5, has said publicly he blanched at what he did not tell the committee. We've had Sir Ian Blair, uh, sorry, Lord Blair now, who was caught out lying to the committee about how many terrorist atrocities had been stopped between 2005 and 2008. He doubled the number. Shades of General Alexander talking to Congress in America post-Snowden. And we've also had MI5 boss Sir Jonathan Evans having to admit that his predecessor had been less than frank about possible spy complicity in torture. And it was very easy for them to get away with this. So it's great that there are more powers. But it's also very easy in terms of oversight. And there are other mechanisms we can talk about. Just briefly, we have the commissioners that can go in and oversee interception of communications, of intelligence and matters like that. But again, I know from the inside, and this has been said before, it is very easy for the intelligence officers to game that process, to ensure that these people are not given full access to the people they need to speak to about ethical concerns and things that might have gone wrong. So it is very much a balance. It's fantastic that the debate is starting. It's somewhat concerning that actually the debate is much more controlled, much more anodyne within the UK than it has been across many other Western countries and even in America where they've had congressional hearings and changes to the regulation of the NSA. So I hope that this continues. 
Um, I'm sure it will because there will be plenty more information coming out from Mr. Snowden and his disclosures. We will see um, a greater debate. So it's a good start, but I would love to see it moving faster and I would love to see people more aware of what is at stake here if we allow our democracy to slide away further and our privacy to be eroded yet further. We will end up in a surveillance dystopia. Thank you. Okay, um, I've, I've promised to open the floor. Um, my intention at the minute is to probably try and steal a bit more time for us um, to continue, but um, The Guardian has been subjected to some criticism from the panel, um, notwithstanding Matthew's uh, amelioration or tempering of that criticism. So I thought the very first thing I should do um, is offer anybody who, in the audience who happens to be from The Guardian, not looking at anyone in particular or demanding that that actually happens, uh, but uh, offer them at least the opportunity to um, uh, take up a right of reply. Jill, uh, maybe you could introduce who you are. I'm the director of uh, editorial legal at The Guardian, for those of you who don't know me. So I've sort of been helping to steer some of the Edward Snowden stuff through over the last six months. And, I mean, there, there are lots of points that I could make, but I, I wanted to make uh, pick up on one point that Annie made, which is that I do think it's interesting the complete level of paranoia that the UK intelligence services have demonstrated in this debate compared to what has gone on in the United States where actually they've sort of embraced the fact that they messed it up and have started to look at how to sort it out and we're really not getting there very fast or far in the UK. Um, And the second point I just wanted to make really Uh, to defend the Guardian and the other papers who have uh, sort of uh, helped publicise the Snowden stuff is that if we hadn't done it, someone else would have. And if we hadn't done it in what we think was a very conservative way in redacting, in not publishing an awful amount of the uh, material, in uh, working very hard to make sure that what we published fell on the embarrassing as opposed to the damaging side of the equation. And actually, despite what David says, no one has really come up with anything that persuades me that we really have done anything that falls the wrong side of that line. Um, I know they'll disagree, but uh, I, I do think that, uh, yeah, as I say, you know, with the, the Guardian tried to offer constraints around this. If we hadn't been there, uh, who knows what might have come out. You might have had a dump of everything. So you've got to feed those things into the debate in terms of the role that newspapers and journalists uh, have to play in this sort of thing. And, you know, without, without Snowden and without those papers, you wouldn't be here tonight having this discussion because it, it just wouldn't be happening because you wouldn't know about it. So thank you. Okay, as I mentioned, I think we, we can have about 15 minutes for questions from uh, the floor, okay? So what I'll do is I'll take two, possibly three questions at a time. Um, if you can wait before asking your, your question. I say that I am the subject of surveillance, and I have questions to put. Sure, I'll, I'll come to you in just a second. But before you get to, to, to ask your question, can you um, please state your name and uh, offer any affiliation that you have um, that you think is, is relevant to our discussions, okay? Um, before asking your question, please wait for a microphone. So uh, we'll take the, 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 the gentleman in the middle then, and um, if the other 
Microphone can be coming down to the front. Thank uh, you very much indeed. To my left. My name is Jones, Dr. Robert Jones. Uh, Sir David, on Monday, on the start of the week programme, you made various statements. You said the British system is well regulated and GCHQ is not breaking the law. I take issue. Personally, my telephone is tapped. There have been break-ins at my house. There have been corrupted software, documents stolen, computers destroyed, my emails categorised, and professional activities have been blocked. Look at me. I'm an old man. I'm a cripple. I'm a graduate of your university, and I'm a scientist. I want to know why. Okay. We have a second uh, question here. Yes. Uh, uh, well, my name is Guy Finson. I suppose the most relevant thing about me is I used to uh, work with some of the free trade union groups um, during the now happily defunct Cold War. Um, it is striking, I think, with the Oversight Committee, of, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think you're the only woman that's a member of it. I think the average age is said to be 66, which, given your my age, the others must be terribly old. <laughs> um, uh, and uh, there does, it is extraordinary uh, how different the public attitude is to these issues here and in almost every other country, uh, Western country. And uh, I wonder if we're not missing something very fundamental, and that is that we have no historical memory, really, of a totalitarian state, nor of occupation by a foreign power. Arguably, the United States has that, although it's a rather old one, a very benign uh, foreign power, of course. Um, but uh, I, I wonder if that leads us to miss the concern that perhaps we should have, that, yes, I'm not really at all worried about this government or the next government knowing whatever they wish to know about, well, anybody in this room. But what about a government we don't foresee in 20 or 30 years' time, a gradual change? And perhaps when we look back to the MI5 of the 1960s and 1970s and even the 80s, perhaps there are some reasons to uh, be a little hesitant. Okay, I think both these questions are directed towards this side of the table, so um, if either of you, David or, or his, would like to pick that up. Come with you. Um, I, I would just say that I agree with you about the nature of the Intelligence and Security Committee. Um, I would like to see um, more diverse membership, and um, being the only woman uh, is, is sometimes um, not a always comfortable place to be and um, I've actually recently launched um, a, a piece of work looking at women in our intelligence services and um, part of me thought why am I doing that just because I'm the only woman but I know if I don't do it it probably won't happen um, so, so I agree with you on that um, and I think it is interesting the difference um, in the response in different countries um, I went out over to Berlin last year um, and talked to some of their politicians and they are hugely exercised about this in Germany um, and entirely understandably um, because they have the experience of the Stasi and the totalitarian state uh, and therefore they're much more um, you know, exercised and energised about this th than we are here. So I think your point's very well made um, and although as a committee we knew about the capabilities of GCHQ, um, clearly the Snowden revelations brought them into greater relief and I think it would probably be a good idea um, for the Intelligence Committee um, to keep capabilities under review as well as the legal framework because it's Matthew's point, they may well be complying with the law, um, but actually 
you know, are we happy with the capabilities issue as well? So I think regular review is really important. Um, and, and I know that David's been making a suggestion maybe in each parliament um, so that each parliament does that kind of, of work. I think that's a, a really good suggestion. Just to uh, sort of add to that, I, I too have shared the same concern. In my book, it's not about the existence of these tools. That's what you need in the internet if you're going to be able, as the authorities these days, um, to track the communications of the people who genuinely mean us harm. It's not about the tools, it's about how we can have confidence that not only now but for the future they can't be misused. And that may well mean a pretty radical look at the way oversight is conducted, and Hazel has given us um, some indications there. I'll just mention one aspect of that that hasn't had the airtime I think it should. The most effective form of control is self-control. Anyone who's brought up teenagers knows perfectly well they spend most of their time out of your sight. And if you haven't inculcated in them the right kind of self-discipline and a sort of moral attitudes, then goodness knows any amount of oversight is not going, and, and, and codes of conduct are not going to work. So I think one of the most important things I look to the ISC to do is to test the moral character of the people who are running these organisations and whether they genuinely share the values. And he's made some points about, as it were, the past in relation to her service. And did everyone in that service share those values? Now, that's one of the jobs I think the slightly above-average-aged ISC is actually very well-placed to do because they're very experienced people. Finally, to Dr. Jones... There's no point in asking me. I wouldn't know whether anything you've said uh, holds water. But the 1994 Act provides for an independent tribunal to investigate accusations of abuse of authority in the, uh, by the intelligence agencies. And if you have concerns, that's where to go. That's the senior judge. Uh, Matthew Wall. Wall I 2000 think. Act as well. Yeah. 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 Okay. If it meets on a Tuesday afternoon once a week, let me please answer my question. As I said, I am a scientist. I have discovered the cause of Alzheimer's disease. I've been trying for the past four years to get that in the public domain. Just today, this afternoon, at the Royal Society of Medicine, I found, yes, it's on the web. And if anybody wants to know, all you need are the words Alzheimer, pandemic, and blame. And that will lead you to the evidence. Now, I want to know why I have been suppressed all these years. I want to know about the burglaries. I want to know why there's no justice for me. And don't fault me off with at the tribunal. I wrote to Jonathan Evans, former director of GCHQ. I wrote him two letters. I doubt whether they ever got to him. I never had replies. You just have contempt for people like me, sir. And this is a shame. I'll say one thing more. You're a Cambridge graduate. You walk out of your college and you cross the road and you're into my college. And it's time people like you have respect for scientists like me because you haven't. And it's a shame. It's a, it's a disgrace. Okay. Thank you very much for that contribution. I'm sure some of us at least will go and search out the information that you've been alluding to. We have, we have a lot more questions um, to come here. We have one at the very front here, and then we have a second question at the, in the middle at the very back. Okay. Uh, John Wilson, I'm a journalist. Um, should uh, 
people who leak or publish information which is of a danger to the security of the state be indicted for treason? And second question in the middle of the back there. Hi, my name is Eleanor Hinton. Um, I'm from Public Concern at Work. We're a whistleblowing charity. Um, basically, um, it's widely acknowledged that this debate um, is an important debate. Um, the release of the information has given rise to this debate, and we wouldn't be having it um, if it wasn't for Edward Snowden, um, who I'm sure if um, America were able to get their hands on at the moment, he would be um, charged under the Espionage Act. Um, we've seen what happened to Chelsea Manning um, for releasing information. From a legal perspective, um, do you think there should be a public interest defence for whistleblowers who have breached laws in order to get this information into the public domain? Okay, thank you very much. Um, Two more legalistic questions, I think. Um, Matthew, do you want to pick up the idea about whether your client should be uh, susceptible to charges of treason? Um, I think treason is an offence that's rarely... um, uh, used now, and more likely people who are accused of um, seeking to overthrow the state in some way are normally dealing with uh, terrorism offences or Official Secrets Act offences. Um, I think, uh, in reality, um, there is a complex area where uh, people who act in the public interest um, in order to uh, reveal something and do it in a responsible way. Uh, even if there is a, a, a technical reason why their activity could be a criminal offence, um, the prosecution of such people needs to be considered extremely carefully. Catherine Gunn comes to mind as somebody who was a whistleblower in relation to the Iraq war, and the director of public prosecution at that time decided it wasn't in the public interest to prosecute. And the reality is, is that there are some people who are put in a position where they disclose something and therefore uh, the state uh, has a uh, discretion as to whether um, it is appropriate to bring prosecutions. Uh, I, I don't think it's appropriate to sort of comment directly on individual clients or individual cases or individual circumstances, but, but what I would say is that there are some debates which come to public attention uh, once every 10 or 20 years, which are of enormous importance, which inform the public of things that they would otherwise never have known and enable us to have a discussion on terms that we would otherwise be completely in the dark about. When that happens, I think uh, we should not be, be quick to shoot the messenger. The reality is if you take something like, and, and you could say in an Edward Snowden situation, um, realistically... Uh, in the sort of circumstances that people are in, when they disclose something that is of such public, it excites such public debate that begins to initiate global changes in legislation. When you have that sort of situation, the most important question to ask for the security services is, what? Why did it come to this before this information came out? Was there not a way we could have been more proactive? in letting the public know about that and so that this debate could have happened without it needing to be done through a whistleblower. I think the onus is very much on those organisations to ask themselves, how have we got to this situation and why did the whistleblower have to do what they did in order to get this, this, this debate public? Can I um, just come to that? <coughs> Firstly, uh, don't let's be too uh, glib about we wouldn't have known all this but for Snowden if you'd attended my classes at King's College on intelligence, you would have known, you may not have known the word prism, but the 
the existence of uh, the, uh, a lot of this was already well in the public domain, and very good journalists like Matthew Aid had written books about the National Security Agency. I think the, the second thing I wanted to say, I'm on record as saying very firmly that I do not believe The Guardian should be prosecuted for handling this uh, stolen material. I don't think it's in the public interest that newspapers should yeah, be prosecuted in that way. Um, the damage has, however, been done. I'm not accusing The Guardian of, being, uh, of meaning to do that. Uh, lack of imagination and lack of knowledge of how intelligence really works has meant that inadvertently they have indeed uh, done uh, damage. Um, third point uh, I might make about uh, Mr. Snowden. I had this um, vision the other day that if Edward Snowden had managed to get directly in touch with Alan Rushbridger, which he couldn't, he wasn't able to, he had to go through intermediaries. If he had, then Alan Rushbridger and the editor of the New York Times could have organized, I'm quite sure, a hearing in front of the Senate Oversight Committee in which the two editors would have flanked Edward Snowden as he demonstrated to the committee with his, some of his documents that the committee had been misled by the administration and that some of the evidence they had been given was, to put it mildly, misleading. That would have created a political stink of the first order and would have forced President Obama indeed to rein in as he has done uh, recently. It did not take the theft of 1.7 million top-secret documents to achieve that. And by that irresponsible act, I'm afraid that is what I regard as one of the tragedies of Edward Snowden. What really worried him was not the International Security Agency spying on you or me. What worried him was the American federal government collecting uh, intelligence on Americans, and uh, there's no doubt that the Oversight Committee in Congress would have reacted pretty strongly, as they have done now that it's come out, if that's all he had managed, if he had done that. I, I, sorry. Uh, with all due respect, I think, David, you just slightly contradicted yourself there, because you said on the one hand that The Guardian had caused damage by reporting this material, but on the other hand, actually... This material is generally known because people like you have been lecturing on these programmes. They might just not have known the word prison. So slightly contradictory, but... Um... No, well, to, just to clarify that, <laughs> that point, what The Guardian has published, of course, uh, not just The Guardian, but the other New York Times and the other newspapers, are some very specific points about some of the tricks of the trade. But the existence of the bulk access and, and so on. All of that is common knowledge. Uh, again, I mean, I, I knock around with sort of uh, geek circles, um, activist circles. All this stuff has at least been suspected and all at least had known about, and they've taken measures for years to try and uh, counteract some of these surveillance techniques. So, you know, it's out there, it's out there. Um, just to pick up on some of the points, though, from the questions, actually. Um, I believe the 1911 Official Secrets Act is still in place, in play, under UK law, yeah, which means that actually if you do betray your country, you can be prosecuted and go to prison for 14 years. What we have with the 1989 Official Secrets Act was actually um, a revised act in order to particularly penalise people who blow the whistle, and you get two years in prison for that under Section 1.1. Um, because up until the 1980s, under the 1911 Act, there was indeed a public interest defence. And that is what 1980s whistleblowers, including Clive Ponting, used successfully not to get convicted. So there has been that, and the public interest defence was removed 
in order to stop whistleblowers. Damage defence. Yes, the damage defence. And, of course, the damage defence is still there, I think, for journalists as well, isn't it? Just not intelligence officers. Um, But I think it's interesting looking at what's going on at the moment, particularly in the US, where we're having a war on whistleblowers being waged. President Obama has used this Espionage Act from 1917, which is like our 1911 Official Secrets Act, seven times since he became president to persecute whistleblowers. And that is more in, those, in his brief presidency than all previous presidents in aggregate have used since 1917 to go after people. So he's waging war on whistleblowers. And even whistleblowers like Thomas Strait from the NSA, who went through all the approved channels, he went through his hierarchy, he went to Congress, he made representations, and yet he was still threatened with 35 years in prison for doing so. This, and I think Edward Snowden has actually said this very clearly, um, this is a deterrent for new whistleblowers coming forward. But even if you go through all the correct channels, you can still be persecuted. So I think he just wanted to get the information out there as rapidly as possible in order to make that difference. And I think he was deterred from going to Congress, as David suggested he could have done, because of those previous um, examples. Um, And I would also suggest that it would be lovely to see in the UK, it would be lovely to see a proper, effective channel for intelligence officers to go to, where there could be meaningful um, action taken on the basis of their evidence of incompetence or cover or criminality. And it would be lovely to see the ISC perhaps offer that channel so that the whistleblowers do not have to lose their jobs, lose their careers, face prison, lose their liberty and everything like that. But for it to be proven that if a whistleblower were to go to the ISC and give their evidence, there would be a meaningful investigation into that evidence. And action, if indeed wrongdoing was seen to have existed, action indeed to rectify that. And for you know, whistleblowers, potential whistleblowers to have that possibility and that faith I think would be a service to them. It would be a service to ethically concerned intelligence officers on the inside to this day. And it would, be, um, it would improve the work of our spies and improve the way that they can potentially protect our national security in this country. So I would suggest that. Can, can I make one very, very quick point, which is that um, I think the presence of, of Sir David in this debate and Hazel Blears in this debate is so valuable and so important. Your expertise is so important in this understanding of these issues that I say with the greatest of respect, um, that expertise and that contribution gets sidelined or gets distracted when the focus is on the messenger and those who facilitated the messenger. The, the actual expertise that you bring to the debate and, and dealing with the, the fundamental problems that have now come to light is so much more valuable than spending time worrying about whether it should have been disclosed and how it should have been disclosed when we're now having such an important debate. And that, that's where, for me, the focus and your contributions are so important. Okay. Um, I had promised uh, each of our speakers a, a last word. Um, we're running over time. What I think I'll do uh, instead of doing that is invite two final questions and then ask each of our panel members... Um, uh, as appropriate to answer the questions and perhaps to say maybe one one point um, that they would like uh, you to go away with. So we'll, we'll take these, these two questions down here at the front. The gentleman at the front and then the lady in the second row. Yeah, my name is David Lowry. I'm a researcher and a former student at the LSE from the 1970s. Um, both uh, Sir David and Matthew Ryder mentioned the issue of collection of metadata and its relevance. In um, a written answer published in Hansard today, the record of Parliament, um, a Labour MP asked the Foreign Secretary on how many occasions the director of GCHQ 
or his staff acting on his behalf had requested ministerial authorization to approve GCHQ reading the content of emails gathered as part of general metadata collection since this government came to power. And he added how many occasions such requests been turned down. And the answer from the junior foreign minister was this. It's the long-standing policy of successive governments not to comment on matters of intelligence. Now, my view is that's an insult to the intelligence, both the parliament and the people. And I can't understand why in America the U.S. president can stand up and give an hour-long speech and make a detailed presentation of why the American intelligence community got things wrong and what he was going to do about it. And in the British Parliament, they get fobbed off that they can't talk, say you a single word about intelligence. Okay, thank you. And the second question is in the second row Hi, my name is Serafina. I'm currently a student at LSE, and I would just like to thank, firstly, the speakers for a very interesting debate. I sort of have... I'm cheating a bit. I'm having two questions in one. And it is addressed to both sides of the debate. The first is um, I thank Annie, actually, for talking about the fact that national security has never been really legally defined. And yet, at the same time, the question arises is, what about public interest? What exactly is public interest? I would, I, 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 I would like to suggest that it's as nebulous a concept as you say the whole idea of national security is, or terrorism, for that matter. And the other question, which I would like to address to Hazel Blair's MPs, I, I, I agree with you entirely when that the commercial, private, or public companies are collecting way more information in much more detail and in greater amounts, and yet at the same time, it misses the nature of the coercive power of the state, because the state can do things to us that these private companies may not have the resources or ability to do. So how would you address that difference? Thank you. Okay, thank you very much. Um, so what we'll do is I'll, I'll ask Annie um, to answer the question directed uh, immediately to her. Um, Hazel, the same. Um, I'll then uh, invite um, David and Matthew to offer a closing point. And if any of you can also answer our initial question there, about the insult to Parliament um, through refusal to answer, then please do so. So, Annie. Uh, well, I agree. I mean, again, it's just a situation where a debate should be had um, about what is the public interest because it is something that's been much abused in the media as well. I mean, you know, the idea of tabloid um, phone hacking and all that sort of thing is in the public interest, has been much debased, um, and I think that is something that we need to, to address. Um, actually, I would like to just pick up very quickly on the commercial companies. As you rightly say, we volunteer the information to them, largely, whereas the state can just do things to us, the intelligence agencies, we don't necessarily know. But let's not forget that some of the Snowden disclosures showed um, that the intelligence agencies and these private companies were, if not colluding, were being allowing their information to be used and to be abused and have backdoors built in as well. So I think what we're looking at is a sort of notion of corporatism, a merger of the corporate and the state, which can be damaging. So powers like... Facebook's um, photo tagging um, technology, Google's um, facial recognition technology they're building, and then meshing that with CCTV coverage around the streets and um, <coughs> behavioural predictive technology that can be developed as well by some intelligence um, agencies and some commercial companies. If you merge all this together, we could be identified and tracked a lifetime around the streets using CCTV. And if we then behave in a manner which might be deemed to be suspicious, then action could be taken against us. Now, if this sounds like some sci-fi dystopia, it's not. This is actually a programme that was real, revealed via WikiLeaks a couple of years ago called Trackwire. 
So if anyone's interested, have a Google. This is becoming Orwellian. Um, just, just to um, take head on the, the reply that was given by a foreign office minister, um, I, I think that you know part of this whole debate and the fact that there's a huge um, increase in public interest uh, in these issues um, will probably mean that there does need to be um, a fuller and better answer given to people. Uh, we have an annual report from our committee um, every year, and for the last three years, We've had the annual reports. We've almost had to argue to get parliamentary time in which it can be debated. Uh, and when we do get a debate, there's hardly anybody turns up. Uh, it tends to be the members of the committee. We all kind of, you know, speak for 15 minutes about what we've been doing the last year, uh, and that's more or less it. Um, I'm hoping that in future our annual uh, debates will be lively, exciting. Um, there'll be, you know, crowds of MPs in, in, in the chamber all wanting to debate these issues. And, you know, maybe that's uh, one of the good things that's come out of, of, of what's happened, that there will be greater public interest um, and that there will be an examination in government um, about what actually can be said on these issues. Um, because I, you know, my politics has always been about having faith and confidence in the general public to take a reasonable view. Um, and I think if there is more pressure on government to do that, then that's not a bad thing uh, in terms of what you said. Um, in terms of the other issue um, that, that, that you raised about the commercial uh, companies, I entirely take your point that they don't have the power um, maybe to you know, imprison you, do all those dreadful things that the state can do. Um, but I think what I was trying to highlight in my contribution um, is that they have got enormous capability and nobody ever, ever talks about what they're doing in the name of profit uh, rather than in the name of protecting your security. And my other point really is that in all the stuff that our agencies do, um, they have to be um, compliant with the Human Rights Act. Um, it has to be in accordance with RIPA. It ha either has to be authorised under the Intelligence Services Act. And everything they do has to be documented as being necessary, proportionate, and it's auditable. So if it isn't necessary and it isn't proportionate to the threat that we face, and if it isn't authorised, then they will be acting outside our legal framework. So some of the scenarios, I'm afraid, Annie, that, that you painted actually would be absolutely outside our legal framework and, and the agencies would be operating in, in a way that was unconstitutional um, and, and unlawful. Um, and and you know, nobody ever says that everything we do has to be necessary and proportionate to the threat we face. They don't do all this for the love of it. They do this in order to try and protect the country. That rather brings us back to the questions of where adequacy of oversight, I think. You know, but David, a final word? Final couple of words from me. Um, although we're arranged this way on the panel, I don't think there are two sides in this debate, and I think it would be a great mistake if we end up polarising this. I've argued for some years that we need a new boundary to be set about what is secrecy. Um, the, it's quite right not to comment on individual exposure of individual operations. Once you go down that track, the journalists very quickly start feeding you questions and then you have to say, well, I can't comment, and then they say, well, that means you're obviously guilty. But that's a very small, very small amount. Information about the purposes of intelligence, information about the kinds of ways in the Internet age that it's necessary to act in order to get intelligence, the value of intelligence, all of that can be much more readily spoken about yeah. today and should be, and I've been arguing that for some, some years. Um, Annie raised a very interesting question about should we be looking again at the definition of national security. I think that's, that's a very interesting question. 
I take a different view from Annie. I think it, rather than narrowing it, I think it's a psychological construct. I think it's a state of confidence on the part of the people that the major threats facing us are being satisfactorily managed so we can go about our normal lives freely, with our liberties, with our values, with our rights, and with confidence. That's what national security to me means, and you can see nations around the world that haven't got it. And that, to me, means that rather than seeing the right to privacy as the core issue, it isn't. It's the right to security, that, as I've defined it just now, that is the core issue. Because if you don't have that, you can't have the structure that will actually protect our, our rights. Thank you. Um, uh, just a few short points. Uh, Hazel mentioned at one point that we don't have rogue intelligence agencies in this country. I, I, I think um, that's right insofar as it, it goes, but we're litigating at the moment, we're dealing at the moment with a history of secret policing and undercover policing that is coming to light, which is causing real concern. And it's just a small illustration of how when the gathering of intelligence isn't properly structured and isn't properly monitored, whether it's intelligence services or whether it's policing, it, there's real dangers arise. The second point I wanted to say quickly was that the, the, a colleague reminded me of a discussion I had in the, in the court, actually, in the Miranda case, when we postulated the idea of a camera in everybody's home taking pictures of what they do and getting to a position where the government says, we will never look at this. We will never, ever, ever look at this information unless we then have a reason to do so at some stage in the future. And how comfortable would we feel about that? Now, that's a debate that we should have, but that's a real debate when it, when it comes to issues of saying, well, gather all your email and buffer it for a short period of time. We will not look at it, but we, we really won't. And then, I mean, I take that at face value, but are you even comfortable with the government having it? It's, a, it's an important issue for us to debate. I think if one was to take some, some positives away from this, my headline uh, is uh, one of the Intelligence Services Committee, uh, Hazel Blizz, saying we need to look at regulation of receipt of information from foreign agencies. That's a fantastically important point for a member of the Intelligence Services Committee to make tonight. I really welcome that. I think that's a fantastic point to make. It's a discussion we should have really important, important uh, trigger for what many of us have been saying for a long time. Which brings me on to the final point that, that uh, uh, one of the points Hayes was saying, confidence. Confidence, confidence, confidence in our democracy means you can say things, you can reveal some secrets, you can say in, high, in theoretical terms, we are doing this, or this could be allowed in our law, and you don't have the paranoia that merely opening the door to something that could be happening suddenly destroys the great structures of secrecy on which our security depends. That confidence, which you're hearing from David, which you're hearing from Hazel, I think is the foundation of it, because that confidence, when we don't talk about paedophiles and terrorists, and we talk about actually what are we really doing and what are the structures, that confidence allows a proper debate to be had. And we shouldn't be having that through trying to glean from a lecture here or a disclosure there what's really going on. In fact, bottom line is this. We now know some of what's going on and we're litigating. When you come to a discussion like this, uh, we say the debate has started and you hear, we need to have a discussion and that's very good. But then what happens is, where does the discussion go? And the next chapter, where some of these questions are going to be answered, will be in the Intelligence Services Committee itself, will be in Parliament, considering law, and will be in, hopefully, the courts that we have, whether it's Investigatory Powers Tribunal or Strasbourg or wherever, 
where we're starting on the base of information we now have, thanks to these revelations, to be able to meet on the bones and say, let's have this discussion, let's see where the law lies, let's see where the framework is. And for that reason, the debate's good, but the next stage is answering some of the questions that the debate has raised. Okay, thank you very much. Um, just to close then, I, I would like to thank you all for your forbearance. First of all, with our um, uh, late start, um, moreover with our late finish, um, and thank you again for coming out on this um, dreadful day at all. And I'd ask you to, th- to join me in thanking our four panellists for their uh, eminently um, insightful contributions.